podcast one production. October 22nd, 1962. President John F. Kennedy delivers a nationwide television address, informing Americans that the Soviets have been discovered setting up launch pads in Cuba for nuclear missiles. And suddenly, the United States might be minutes away from thermonuclear annihilation. We no longer live in a world for only the actual firing of weapons, represents a sufficient challenge to a nation's security to constitute maximum peril. Nuclear weapons are so destructive and ballistic missiles are so swift that any substantially increased possibility of their use or any sudden change in their deployment may well be regarded as a definite threat to peace. All this happened six weeks before I was born. My mother once confided in me that she was terrified we'd be vaporized before she gave birth. Sudden death in a nuclear fireball. With those missiles on the nation's doorstep, America's military planners found themselves having to make a decision to retaliate in just two or three minutes. Not a lot of time to weigh the fate of the world, and if you got it wrong... Not much time for regrets either. How could anyone possibly make the right call? And even if you could step outside of the terror and fear and anguish, how could you trust the data upon which the fate of the world depended when you didn't have time to double-check it? What if that blip wasn't a Cuban missile heading north? What if it was a flock of Canadian geese migrating south? And the time it takes to know the difference is greater than the time it takes to end the world. That's what made this moment so dangerous. Our ability to destroy had run too far ahead of our ability to decide. A moment that a number of people had seen coming, including a young engineer in Palo Alto, California, Douglas Engelbart. Man's population and gross products are increasing at a considerable rate, but the complexity of his problems grows still faster and the urgency with which solutions must be found becomes steadily greater in response to the increased rate of activity and the increasingly global nature of that activity. For over a decade, Engelbart had been obsessed with humanity's acceleration into complexity. He saw it happening everywhere and foresaw how it would overwhelm our capacity to make good decisions. Unless we got smart. And that was the essence of Engelbart's 130-page proposal, published in the same month as the Cuban Missile Crisis, outlining a plan for augmenting human intellect. Engelbart's plan defined a direction for research, not just for him and not just for the next few years, but for almost all of computing in 56 years. Augmenting human intellect told us what we should be doing, why we should be doing it, and how it might be done. But it was all just a proposal. It would be more than six years before that work came to light. And in those six years, the world went crazy. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over 
and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. That's Martin Luther King Jr. on the 3rd of April, 1968, the night before his assassination. Six weeks later, students at the Sorbonne in Paris, fed up with their conservative leadership and American imperialism, led the youth of France onto the streets, eventually forcing President Charles de Gaulle to resign. It looked like a genuine revolution. Two weeks later, Robert Kennedy won the California Democratic primary. We are a great country and a selfish country, compassionate country, and I intend to make that my basis for running and over the period of the next year. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you. Within minutes, Kennedy was dead. Another assassination. At the end of August, tens of thousands of young Americans, fed up with their conservative leadership and American imperialism, took to the streets of Chicago during the Democratic Convention. Three days of bloody riots exposed divisions of age, race, gender and power. The centre was not holding. It was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the summer of riots. Heading to a winter of despair. It was 1968. When the world began. Hi, this is Mark Pesci of The Next Billion Seconds, and to co-host this four-episode miniseries, I'm joined by Dr. Genevieve Bell. We're looking back on the most chaotic year of the 20th century. Doug Engelbart had got it right. The world had grown beyond all manageable complexity. By 1968, it looked like our problems were about to overwhelm us. But a solution stood waiting in the wings. Doug's solution. Doug Engelbart had amazing timing. There he was back in 1962, proclaiming the need to make humans smarter so they could make better decisions and manage greater complexity. The Cuban Missile Crisis came along to drive that point home. A few weeks after that, J.C.R. Licklider, who we met in our last episode, took the helm of the Information Processing Technologies Office at ARPA. He's got a mandate to fund research that would help the military make better decisions. (laughs) Boy, did they need that. So, when he opens Doug's massive proposal, this is what he reads. By augmenting human intellect, we mean increasing the capability of a man to approach a complex problem situation, to gain comprehension to suit his particular needs, and to derive solutions to problems. More rapid comprehension, better comprehension. Speedier solutions, better solutions, and the possibility of finding solutions to problems that before seemed insoluble. The professional problems of diplomats, executives, social scientists, life scientists, physical scientists, attorneys, designers. Whether the problem situation exists for 20 minutes or 20 years. Engelbart offers exactly what Licklider needs, exactly what the Pentagon needs so they don't accidentally nuke the planet. And Licklider knows Engelbart is on the right track because he's following in the footsteps of another pioneer, one who might have been the focus of this episode. If only Vannevar Bush had been born a few years later. He's one of the fathers of computing. 
But back in the 1920s, when he did most of his research, the transistor hadn't been invented. And vacuum tubes were considered far too unreliable to be used for computing. So Bush built a computer out of gears and wheels. You'd think that's a joke, like something out of the Flintstones, but it's absolutely true. These first differential analyzers solved complex calculus problems quickly, proving very useful for a limited range of applications. And although it appeared theoretically possible to use electronic circuits to perform the computations, Bush never really warmed up to the idea, preferring his of gears and wheels. The success of the differential analyzer made him a superstar of the sciences, saw him promoted to the Dean of Engineering and Vice President at MIT, then into a range of government posts, culminating as the director of the US Office of Scientific Research and Development, overseeing and coordinating all scientific research during World War II. But he never stopped thinking about computing. In 1940, Cyberman Norbert Wiener came to Bush seeking funding for the world's first digital computer. Bush knocked him back because he thought the problem was so hard it could never be finished in time to aid the war effort. Wiener eventually got his funding from the army, but the computer, known as the ENIAC, didn't start operating until the end of 1945. Vannevar Bush knew the day the digital computer would come, and he knew why we'd need them. Not just to solve fancy mathematical problems, but to help us manage a world growing more complex and more dangerous. As director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development, he was one of the few individuals on Earth who were fully briefed on the Manhattan Project. And in July 1945, a month before the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the same month as the Trinity nuclear test, Bush published a long essay entitled, As We May Think, in the pages of Atlantic Monthly. You can read it for yourself on the Atlantic's website. We'll link to it. It's probably the most influential piece ever written about computing, and it was written before any digital computer had been built. Bush didn't need to talk about hypothetical computers because as we may think is really all about us and about the kind of tools we needed to help us think and remember better. Man's spirit should be elevated if he can better review his shady past and analyse more completely and objectively his present problems. He's built a civilization so complex that he needs to mechanise his records more fully if he is to push his experiment to its logical conclusion and not merely become bogged down part way, thereby overtaxing his limited memory. To do that, Bush proposed a new kind of device, something he named the Memex. Consider a future device for individual use, which is a sort of mechanised private file and library, a device in which an individual stores all his books, records and communications and which is mechanised so that it may be consulted with exceeding speed and flexibility. It is an enlarged, intimate supplement to his memory. Now, if you consider how we use our smartphones, we have all our books, records, and communications at our fingertips, you can feel the shape of Bush's Memex. Bush defined the central feature of the Memex, creating chains of association, linking one thing to another to another, because that's the way we think. The human mind operates by association. With one item in its grasp, it snaps instantly to the next that is suggested by the association of thoughts in accordance with some intricate web of trails carried by the cells of the brain. Bush is describing the web, links to links to links to links, 45 years before Sir Tim Berners-Lee invents it. Bush knew these chains of association would make people smarter. But as he wrote this before the first digital computer, Bush describes his Memex as a large mechanical desk, more adding machine than smartphone. 
17 years later, Douglas Engelbart references as we may think at length in his own augmenting human intellect. Engelbart has the advantage of the transistor and nearly two decades of digital computing, so he's able to describe how to build the Memex. And that's exactly what Licklider needed to see, convincing him to provide ARPA funding for Engelbart's Human Augmentation Research Center at the Stanford Research Institute, a think tank located in what we now call Silicon Valley. Back in 1962, it wasn't a hotbed of technology. It was mostly orange groves and apricot trees. In its out-of-the-way location, away from the powerhouses of computing at Harvard and MIT and the University of Pennsylvania, Engelbart put together a team that would go on to change the world. When we come back, we'll take a look at the day, Doug's demo, and the machine that changed the world. Welcome back to 1968 when the world began as Genevieve Bell and I explore what might be the most important hundred minutes in the history of technology. Sometimes there are moments in history which neatly divide things into a before and an after. One of those is the mother of all demos. December 9th, 1968. Doug Engelbart has been working on his machinery to augment human intellect for six years. Now his paymasters at ARPA want him to show it to the world. The Fall Joint Computing Conference was the perfect opportunity. 10,000 computer science researchers and engineers all coming together to learn from one another. In our last episode, we heard how Ivan Sutherland brought his world-first VR system, nicknamed the Sword of Damocles, to the Fall Joint Computer Conference, contributing two papers to the conference proceedings, both of which are fundamental to virtual reality and 3D computer graphics. It was that kind of event. Lots of firsts. And remember, this is before we had email and the internet for researchers to share the results in real time. These were the folks who were creating email and the internet. Yeah, but they didn't have it yet. So if they wanted to learn from one another, they had to convene, which is what they did from the 9th to the 11th of December in San Francisco. Doug's lab at SRI was 45-minute drive away, where he kept the computers and the displays he'd been using to create his machine for augmenting human intellect. And it was all far too big and delicate to bring to San Francisco. Instead, they leased a dedicated phone line, wiring SRI in Palo Alto to an auditorium in San Francisco with a standing room only audience. The word had gone out, you couldn't miss this talk. Now, on stage, Doug Engelbart sitting in front of a display was actually the display of his computer 50 miles away, captured by a video camera and transmitted to the auditorium. Well, his team had gotten NASA to lend him one of the very first video projectors. So Doug's image, side by side with his display, fills this giant screen. He began with a question. The research program that I'm going to describe to you is quickly characterizable by saying, if in your office, you as an intellectual worker were supplied with a computer display backed up by a computer that was alive for you all day and was instantly responsive to every action you had, how much value could you derive from that? Well, this basically characterizes what we've been pursuing for many years in what we call the Augmented Human Intellect Research Center at Stanford Research Institute. And it sounds like a simple question. In 2018, 
when all of us sit in front of responsive computers, whether in our desks or in our pockets. At the time, hardly anyone had used a responsive computer. No one really knew what to do with them. Doug showed them. He'd spent the last six years building a tool so he could show them the shape of responsive computing. The first thing Doug demonstrated, well, it almost seems too simple. So I have a a statement with some entities' words, and I can do some operations on these. I can copy a word. I can say that word like copy after itself. In fact, that pair of words I like to copy after itself, and I can just do this a few times and get a bit of uh, material there. Doug's sitting there in front of a screen copying and pasting words so that he has a display full of words, literally the word word, that he's copied and pasted over and over and over. It's something we've all done, but... This is the first time. This is the first public demonstration of copy and paste. So one of the oddest things about the mother of all demos is that there's just silence from the audience. These days, we expect to hear hoots and roars of applause for demos. There wasn't any then. And it wasn't because the audience were bored. It's because they were stunned. No one had seen a computer used like this. Very few had even considered that a computer could be used like this. And maybe that's the reason, a few minutes later, that Doug suddenly veers into one of the oldest tropes in computing. What does woman want? Let me go to a file that I prepared just after my wife called me and said, on the way home, would you do a little shopping for me? So as soon as she said that, I uh, got my system organized and made a shopping list. Doug's showing dragging. That's another thing no one had seen before. And he's showing collapsing and expanding levels, again, for the first time. He could have done this with a parts list for an electronic circuit or an org chart for a company, but it's a shopping list because, well, I'll let Genevieve explain. What can you say? Even in 1968, when we were inventing the world... We weren't really reinventing the world. We were taking all the things we know about it and making them true one more time. So it's a shopping list because, as Doug says, his wife needs to give him a shopping list because he can't be trusted in a shop. And here we are, 1968, the year the world began, and it's the same world. It's a world where men do demos and women are the subjects of them. Or at least it sometimes feels like that. Now, once he gets that shopping list in there, He's able to click on items in that list, and they send him places. Well, I'm going to do something called jump on a link. And a link is something that'll go between files. So what it's going to do, it says, I'm going to go to your file name, CNRO. And the link also says where in that file and just what view it wants. Everything before this point in the demo has been wonderful and it's been useful, but this is the moment where it turns the corner into world-changing. Here's the associative thought of Vannevar Bush's memics, and it's real. This is the first time anyone has clicked on a link in public. Now, this isn't the web. The web is still more than 20 years away. But this is the basic idea of the web, that we have documents full of links to other documents, which link to other documents, which link to other documents, and on and on and on. This is the penny drop moment when everyone working in computing begins to look at their work differently. It's not just about manipulating symbols on screen or even in the memory of a computer. It's about the associative linking of all human knowledge into a vast, seamless unity. 
A little further in, Doug shows off the hardware they've invented to make this new tool work. I use three, and they're not all standard. We have a pointing device called our mouse, a standard keyboard, and a special key set we have here. And we're going to go for a picture down in our laboratory in Menlo Park and pipe it up that'll show you from another point of view more about how that mouse works. Come in, Menlo Park. Okay, there's Don Andrews' hand in Menlo Park. And in a second, we'll see the screen that he's working and the way the tracking spot moves in conjunction with movements of that mouse. I don't know why we call it a mouse. Sometimes I apologize. It started that way, and we never did change it. Okay, so let's run through that list of firsts. Copy and paste. Tick. Dragging and outlining. Tick. Linking. Tick. And the mouse. All in the first half an hour. And at this point, the demo becomes more nuanced. Because Doug's not just showing off his new tool. He's demonstrating a new way of working. This new way of working is just as important to augmenting human intelligence as the tool he's created. And it all comes down to the name of the tool. He calls it the online system, abbreviated, God knows why, to NLS. It's an online system for an internet that didn't exist in 1968. Now, the call had already gone out from ARPA for a new kind of network designed to connect all of the research computers across America. Our forthcoming involvement is this ARPA computer network, the experimental network that's going to come into being in its first form in about a year and end up sometime later with some 20 experimental computers in a network. And they hope to be able to transmit across the country with bandwidths of something like 20 kilobits per second, delay times of less than a tenth of a second, which would be enough so that I could be running a system in Cambridge over the network and getting the same kind of response on a CRT. And it may be that people there, yeah, the next time we have a conference in Boston, I'll try this from there. That project needed a coordinator, a network information center, and Doug Engelbart had already put his hand up for that. So he knew the internet was coming. He knew what it would be capable of. He'd put himself right in the middle of it, and he'd built a machine to make the most of the internet. The NLS was designed for people to share collaborate and work together. It wasn't just copy or paste or outlining or even linking. The NLS was designed to support whole teams networked together across the internet. Something today we call groupware. Groupware works best when you can have some sort of eye contact with your collaborators. So the NLS included another first, live video conferencing with a remote colleague. Now, computer, do the automatic switching that'll bring in a camera picture from the camera mounted on his console, such as the camera mounted on mine is. Hi, Bill. That's great. Now we're connected audio. You can see my work. You can point at it, and I can see your face, and we can talk. So let's do some collaborating. You're silent. (laughs) Oh. What do you want me to say? This is the first public demonstration of video conferencing, and the first shy reaction is someone joins a video conference to a room full of people. Now the two of them. NLS hardware engineer Bill English and NLS visionary Doug Engelbart, they start working together. One is on stage, one is in his office. They're demonstrating this new style of collaboration. 
Before NLS, we'd never had the kinds of tools that allowed us to collaborate at scale. But we've we've always known the value of collaboration. That's that's the secret of our success as a species. We can work together in tens or hundreds or thousands and do great things. And a great example of that is the motet. We opened this episode with my favorite motet, Spem in Olium, by English composer Thomas Tallis. Considered one of the greatest compositions for the human voice, it features 40 simultaneous vocal parts. Now, despite the number of voices, Spem in Olium is not a cacophony. It's an amazing, deep, spiritual harmony as voices come in and out in a dance around a melody. It's the creative conjunction of humanity at our best, voices raised together in song. And it shows us how, with the right tool, now in this case sheet music, we can aspire to and achieve so much more together than we could alone. Network culture in 2018 is far from perfect, but with the tools Engelbart pioneered, we do now have moments where we can come together, billions of voices, to create something unique and beautiful. Engelbart and his team poured years of their lives into the NLS, and in the mother of all demos, they put it all out there. But would anyone care? We also are hoping that we're developing quite a few design principles for developing augmentation systems and These, I hope, are transferable things. Doug succeeded more than his wildest dreams. Nearly every major computing project after the mother of all demos tried to encompass at least part of the demo. Responsive computing or graphical displays or networking or linking or groupware or video conferencing. There was so much in the demo that the next 50 years of computing all the way through to today has largely seen us filling in the details of the world he sketched out on that December day 50 years ago. All of Doug's work on NLS was transferable. All of it has been so influential. There's hardly a thing we do in front of a screen today that didn't see the light of day in that demo. It's truly when the world began. On the next episode of 1968, When the World Began, we traveled to the Computer History Museum in the heart of Silicon Valley to the 50th anniversary celebration for the mother of all demos. On the 9th of December 2018, we'll talk to some of the folks who helped make the demo happen and ask them for their own thoughts on Doug, the NLS, and the world they created. That's coming your way in our final episode of 1968, When the World Began. Now, if you want to learn more about ARPA, JCR Licklider, Douglas Engelbart, the NLS, the Fall Joint Computer Conference, or simply watch the full glory of the mother of all demos, it's on YouTube, folks. Just drop by our website at nextbillionseconds.com. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's nextbillionseconds.com. Genevieve and I referenced a fair few historical materials in this episode, and we'd like to express our gratitude. Thanks to the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library for an excerpt from his 1962 address to the nation on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Thanks to the Huelgas Ensemble for their recording of Thomas Tallis' Spem in Olium. 
thanks to the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change for that excerpt from his final public speech. Thanks to the Associated Press for bringing us some of the sounds of Paris in 1968. Thanks to the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Center for that excerpt from his final public address. Thanks to YouTube user electionwall.org for the roar of the riots from the Chicago Democratic Convention. Thanks to the Douglas Engelbart Institute for all those clips from the mother of all demos. Excerpts from As We May Think and Augmenting Human Intellect were performed by voice actors. And special thanks for one book that proved absolutely vital in our research, The Dream Machine, J.C.R. Licklider and the Revolution That Made Computing Personal by Mitchell Waldrop. 1968 When the World Began was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Genevieve Bell, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci and Genevieve Bell. Thanking you for listening. listening.